Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm your host, Amber Clayton, director of SHRM's Knowledge Center. On our episode today, we're going to discuss elections as part of HR expertise, U.S. employment law, and regulations. We are fast approaching election day, and we're already seeing thousands of people waiting in lines to vote or mailing in their ballots early. Today, I'm actually going to be talking about elections with my colleagues here from SHRM's Government Affairs team. I'm, I'm pleased to be joined by Lisa Horn, Congressional Affairs Director, and Shatrain Burbel, Public Policy Director. Thank you for coming today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great. Um, so what we're going to be talking about today is more about the potential outcomes of the elections versus uh, what's happening right now in, in the voting piece of it. But for those who are interested in information about elections, Shatrain, what information do we have available to our members? Sure, absolutely. So uh, SHARE members have access to a new resource that the government relations team has launched. It's uh, our elections resource page. And you can find that uh, page at elections.sherm.org. On that page, we have a wealth of resources about the upcoming elections, not only the presidential elections, but also gubernatorial races and congressional races. You can find the candidates' positions on the workplace issues that we're following. You can even look up whether or not you are a registered voter yourself by inputting uh, some identifiable information. In addition, you can uh, also find your your closest polling location, hours. Um, obviously, you may want to check that out before you head out to the polls to cast a vote if you're planning on voting in person because hours of operation may have changed. Different protocols might be in place to ensure uh, health uh, standards with CDC recommendations and physical distancing. So we highly encourage you to take a look at that page. Again, it's elections.sherm.org. And Amber, I would also just add, too, that SHRM members should focus in on that same page uh, the day after the election, too, as it will be updated in real time uh, and we'll be providing content to the members about the election outcomes, what we'll know at that point anyway, and what uh, the impact uh, on the outcome of the elections will be on workplace public policy. So it will be a timely tool. So uh, be sure to check back even after you have uh, cast your ballot in November. Great, great. Well, so you mentioned it, Lisa, the potential outcomes of elections. Tell us what's next. What happens after Election Day? Yeah, and I'll, I'll kick it off. So, you know, I think everybody at this point in time, Amber, you, everybody's focused on Election Day, but as a government relations department, we're constantly thinking about what's next after the elections. So after the elections this year in particular, there's going to be ballot counting. No doubt the current health pandemic is impacting the elections, and it's not just impacting the presidential elections, it's impacting elections across the board. Um, This is mainly due in part because many people are probably not going to opt to vote in person as they traditionally have done. Some may be mailing in their ballots, some will uh, plan ahead and plan to participate in early in-person voting. But what this means is Thereafter, on election day, we may not have the instantaneous results of the elections. Because of mailing in ballots, there's going to be different state efforts that are going to be ongoing, possibly for up to a month, to determine who is actually the winner of the presidential election in particular. 
And this varies from state to state. And the reason being is some states are allowing voting for mailing in ballots to be counted ahead of election day. Some are starting to begin the counting process on the day of election day. Um, and similarly, when you think about mailing in ballots, some states even have different requirements about they may count some of the mail in ballots after election day, although they must be postmarked or post dated prior to election day. And then as you can imagine, in states like California, for example, counting may take days. It's not like political pundits announce officially um, on the news that evening that, you know, here are the instantaneous results. And to make matters even more problematic or prolonging the process even further, if there is a state where the numbers are looking really close, that state may have to recount yet again. And then there's going to have to be a second confirmation of that count. So needless to say, we may not in this current year be able to have those results possibly until the ending of December. You know, I was reading an article the other day about uh, the presidential campaign in, in 1980, where Jimmy Carter was able to quickly go on um, and make his speech immediately. Um, I think we're going to be reminded in this year's um, elections process in the um, 2000 elections. And those of us that may recall, this was the Bush-Gore presidential election campaign where we didn't actually know the results of that election for about a month, a month and a half in. Um, so we could be in for a little bit of a long haul this particular year. But, you know, I, I do want to remind folks that there are a couple of key dates that we're going to be looking forward to following Election Day. There's a, a December 14th. That is when the uh, electors within, within each state has to meet and cast their votes. Then on January 6th, that's the day that Congress counts votes. And then, of course, everybody, I think, at this point knows January 20th is Inauguration Day. So, you know, beyond Election Day, I would say look forward for those other key dates because uh, those will be telling on what the months and the weeks ahead hold for us. But, you know, before we finish this year out, though, you know, Lisa, um, you know, before before we can look to next year, you know, we still have to finish 2020 out, you know, and what does what does that look like? But I think we also have to keep our eye on the ending of the current Congress, right? We are currently in the 116th Congress. Come January, there will be a new Congress, the 117th Congress. You know, the work of government affairs doesn't just end because it's election day and we don't take a pause to the new year. So there's still much to be done. It's already been a very busy year as Congress tackled COVID relief legislation in particular that's dominated the legislative agenda. But um, Next, we have to think about what could happen in Congress between Election Day and the ending of the year. So, Lisa, do you want to share with us a little bit about what Sherm's going to be working on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, folks should know that um, right now, Congress is due to come back after the elections, the, the unfinished business of the 116th Congress. And they'll be coming um, back in what is known uh, famously as uh, a lame duck session. And just to kind of level set with everyone so they understand when they hear that reference to a lame duck session, what that means is that in these, you know, even numbered years following uh, a general election, 
lawmakers, many may be coming back who didn't win re-election. And so uh, hence, they are informally called a lame duck member of Congress participating in a lame duck um, session. So the Senate's due to come back November 9th, you know, shortly right there after the election, um, and the House is uh, expected to be in session the uh, following week. And as I alluded to, they've got some unfinished business. I'd say uh, the biggest piece of business they have to tackle is funding the government. Uh, Right now, they're operating uh, under a continuing resolution to fund the government through December 11th. But from HR uh, professionals' perspective, what we're watching on their behalf and will be impactful to the workplace come this lame duck session is what is going to happen with a number of these provisions that were implemented as part of the CARES Act, as part of the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act, in other words, the uh, COVID-19 related legislation that has a numbering number of provisions that are set to expire at the end of the year. Uh, There is the emergency uh, paid family and medical leave provisions, the paid sick leave provisions due to expire at the end of the year, an expansion of employer-provided educational assistance is due to sunset. And of course, one of our main priorities has been the expansion of the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, to uh, include our um, state councils and chapters. So all of that has to be decided here before the end of the year um, as they come back to hopefully tackle uh, another stimulus package. And as of right now, they're due to go out. You know, when, once they come back, they're slated to stick around You know, really no later um, than December 18th. But for those of us who've worked in government relations over the years, um, sometimes we're still here as we get even closer to the holidays. So stay tuned. But that's what we'll be watching in terms of workplace policy before the end of the year. And so let's um, let's hear a little bit about a new administration and, you know, what happens when that new administration comes into into play. Yeah, that's really an exciting time. And as is and here, of course, we don't know if it's going to be a new administration. I think we could talk about both what it would look like for a new administration as well as if there's a second um, administration. But let's let's start with a new administration. And it's often common that, you know, when you're running for president of the United States and you would be a new president, that you start your transition team planning uh, very early on, I would say probably as early as April and May of this year. Vice President Biden was probably pulling together a transition team. And, you know, there's usually a, a key person that would be appointed to go into um, to each of the agencies and, you know, start preparing for not only personnel, but also everything from information technology to key um, staffing hires, et cetera. And this is a, a huge process. And I think, you know, HR professionals, there's a great analogy, you know, here that if you're a new administration, once you're sworn in on, you know, January 20th, you're um, looking to make more than 4,000 presidential appointments, and more than 1,200 of those uh, require Senate confirmation. And therein is we often see the lag in getting key people into key appointments because Senate confirmation can take a while. There's vetting and hearings and then ultimately just getting floor time to talk about the person's uh, nomination. Uh, It's also the transition team is getting up to speed, you know, with more than 100 federal uh, agencies and organizing and training leadership teams. Again, a lot of um, what HR professionals are quite uh, familiar with, but you're trying to do this so quickly because you hear a lot about what's the 100-day agenda. You know, there's a real push to get your legislative priorities out there 
to have some quick wins so that by the time the 200 day mark comes, you can really point to um, successes. And, you know, I like to use the analogy that the president is essentially, you know, the CEO of a very complex organization of about 2 million civilian federal employees and some 2 million military and reserve forces. So this means ultimately that a presidential candidate must begin um, that transition activity very, very early in the process in order to be successful. And I would say, too, because the second part of the question, Amber, was about, you know, if it's not a new administration and it's a second term for President Trump, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of transition, because as we've already started to see with key people in the administration departing uh, in recent months, and many others have signaled that their plans to do so um, at the very highest levels and of cabinet secretaries, etc., those individuals um, will need to be replaced. So identification of who is going to be the key leader in those those positions, again, the vetting process, and ultimately, as we alluded to, obtaining the government up and running under at full speed, even under a, um, a second term for President Trump. Yeah, and I was just going to add just a little bit more to that. You know, everything that Lisa said is spot on here. But, you know, I think one of the the main points about a transition of power that many Americans may not be aware of is, you know, Congress legislates. And just like it legislates many other aspects of our lives, the transition of power is also legislated. There is a framework for how the transition of power should happen, actually, It's called the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. And Congress explained when they passed this uh, Presidential Transition Act that any disruption occasioned by the transfer of the executive power could produce results detrimental to the safety and well-being of the United States and its people. And as a result of that, to promote an orderly transfer of power, Congress then established this framework for the federal government to prepare for the transition from one president to another. So, you know, much like HR professionals, we all have protocols in our respective workplaces about how do you have transition, you put together secession plans and things like that within your organizations, well, the government also has a similar type of plan. Um, And as you can imagine, when a commander in chief is taking office, there has to have a lot of many individuals in the room and much protocol to ensure that there is an orderly transfer of government. So I do want to mention that. And of course, since 1963, the presidential transition has become very complex as much as the world has, right? So the the act has bipartisanly been updated throughout the year since 1963. I think one of the things that's going to be a major challenge this year, as Lisa mentioned, you know, if there is a Trump administration for a second term, I think it's slightly easier. But if there is a new administration, the current pandemic will make it even more so hard to do so. As Lisa mentioned, a new president is going to be tasked with identifying individuals to fulfill many positions within government. So much like HR professionals have had to be conducting virtual interviews with candidates for jobs, the Biden administration will be going through the same effort. So I think there's much to be learned um, from HR professionals. We can offer some insight on how we've been, um, you know, uh, adapting to the new normal in the current environment. So these are some of the challenges 
challenges that a new administration is going to have to face. And let's be realistic, Congress themselves are also going to have to be dealing with some of these challenges too, um, challenges that have now been imposed by the current pandemic and, you know, with no um, exact timing in sight on how long it will take us to get to the other end of this pandemic, the new Congress is also going to be tasked with figuring out new ways of conducting business in, in this new environment. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about SHRM's activities related to elections and what we in our government affairs office and our volunteers and our members are doing around this time. Yeah, well, I'll I'll kick it off, and then Shatrin can talk about some of the spe- specific activities. But as we look to you know, kind of picking up on the theme of a of a new Congress, there's a lot of new there's a lot of opportunities for Sherm and our members in in a new Congress as well. So the 117th Congress could convene as early as January third um, of next year, and those are always ex- exciting times when you watch the, the swearing in ceremonies happen. But then there's there's also a lot of behind the scenes activities that go on. You know, members are finding where their new office is located up on Capitol Hill. They're setting up their offices. But there's opportunities there for SHRM is that uh, once the 117th Congress is ushered in, we get to start introducing them to SHRM if they're not already uh, familiar uh, with us, introducing them to the association, to the expertise our members bring to the table when it comes to workplace public policy, introducing them to our policy agenda on our kind of five focus areas. And SHRM has a wealth of thought leadership and content, research, et cetera, that is incredibly um, helpful to policymakers. So that's one of our first endeavors from the government affairs standpoint is to make sure um, that those uh, new members, especially, and also continuing to build the prior relationships from members who are reelected, but the the primary focus on a new Congress is the opportunities that exist with those uh, new members. And I'll add a little bit more context too. But before I, I jump into initiatives that SHRM's Government Affairs in partnership with our membership takes on to elevate SHRM as a thought leader and a resource to lawmakers, I do want to mention, you know, we've been talking a lot in particular in, in this last year about policy, not politics. Um, and I kind of want to demystify a little bit about what, what it is we mean by that. I think we need to have that solid foundation and understanding of what we mean by that before we can really talk about why we go about tackling or interacting with members of Congress and the administration. So first and foremost, SHRM is a nonpartisan organization, and we have historically worked with the administration and Congress no matter party affiliation. SHRM does not have a political action committee, i.e. we do not endorse or financially contribute to any political candidate. Uh, When we say policy, not politics, we mean just that. We focus on the policy issues impacting work, workers, and the workplace. And that's it. You know, when the new Congress comes around and the new administration and new governors across the country, one of the things that we set out to do, because a main mission of SHRM is to elevate the SHRM brand and elevate the HR profession as leaders within the workplace and resources that can help lawmakers, especially as they tackle workplace issues. 
We all know from listening to the news this past year in particular, more so than I think ever before, that many of the issues that are going on in our society today really intersect with the workplace. And HR professionals are the most well-positioned professionals to be able to articulate what is going on within their work sites, what is going on with their employees, and how is that transcending to their families and their communities. Our motto is better workplaces create a better world. And we really do believe that. Um, And so for us, it's larger, it's a larger undertaking. So one of the things that we do at the very beginning of a new Congress, new administration, when governors take office is we like to send a welcome letter to those uh, new policymakers to one, say who we are and two, say that we are a resource on all things workplace public policy. So that as they begin to work on their legislative agendas for the year, they will think about SHRM and the HR profession and say, you know what, we're going to be working on this new bill bolstering benefits for employees. Perhaps we ought to get an HR professional to come in here and talk with us about the utilization of this benefit, for example. Uh, That's why we really set out to proactively uh, engage with these lawmakers at the beginning of the year. In addition to that, we know that we cannot go at this alone. We have over 300,000 individual HR professionals, and we know that many of our professional members are friends, affiliates, neighbors. They may go to the same church. Their children may go to the same school with new policymakers. So we rely on our members to help us identify relationships that you all may already have. Actually, what we want to know is that you have that relationship and we call upon you should that member have a question about the workplace then we can reach out to you and say, hey, uh, you know, just wanted to let you know this member of Congress is interested in this particular workplace issue. I think it would be great if you had a conversation or you penned a letter or you called the office. So we also equally rely on our members to tell us about some of those relationships that you already have. And also we all know, uh, especially in Washington, D.C., lawmakers like to hear from their constituents. Lisa and I, we are registered lobbyists. Um, And while we have a lot of technical experience, lawmakers really want to hear from their constituents. And those are HR professionals across the country. So, So why should HR be engaged in advocacy? HR professionals have intimate knowledge of workplace policies of the implementation of workplace policies that many others do not have. There are few lawmakers that have any experience with HR. These uh, lawmakers write laws. Um, They're very familiar with the legal field. They're very familiar with the political field, but they may not be intimately involved with the implementation, the inner workings of how laws are actually implemented within the workplaces. HR professionals, not only know about how laws are implemented, i.e. the administration and compliance of those laws, but they also add the human element to that conversation. HR professionals can explain to lawmakers how policies they are considering will impact the employee and their families. And the lawmakers need to hear from their constituents, you know, who are gonna be impacted by these laws. As I mentioned before, SHRM has over 300,000 members that impact the lives of more than 115 million Americans. That's a lot of constituents. 
that covers every part of this country. And I think that lawmakers can really benefit from hearing from HR professionals. Yeah, in many ways, I would just add to that HR professionals can be helpful in helping ensure that public policy doesn't have unintended consequences. In other words, um, most members of Congress, when they're looking at policy proposals, they, they don't necessarily understand all the unintended consequences of what that implementation of that particular proposal could mean in the workplace. And I think because sure members are, again, experts uh, and have a lot of expertise as it relates to workplace laws, they can help identify and improve many times these policy proposals. And so that's, I think, one of the key main ingredients of advocacy for us is bringing that expertise of our members to bear uh, with policymakers to try to get the best public policy that works for workers and and the workplace. Great. So we answered the why, but how do the HR professionals uh, get involved? Yeah, I would I would encourage uh, all of our members who are interested in public policy and advocacy to join what's known as the SHRM advocacy team or the SHRM A team. And we have a very robust website set up for advocacy at advocacy.sherm.org. You can learn more about the A team. You can learn more about the Uh, Again, the five kind of core public policy pillar areas uh, that we work on. And it really, it's about building on those relationships that, you know, Shatrain alluded to with respect to many of our members may already have a policymaker living next door. And, or if not, it's constantly nurturing a relationship that when you reach out to a member of Congress and you offer yourself as a resource, you'd be surprised. I know in, in my tenure as a congressional staffer, I handled healthcare policy. And when the group of experts from the hospital group, for example, would come and visit me, they would share such great information in terms of the impact of a policy proposal would have on back on my member's home state. And that was information that I didn't readily have available. And so if HR professionals can bring that type of information to bear about what's the home state, what's the district impact of a proposal, again, that's something that a, a staff member and a member of Congress don't have. And it's you know very important information. So it's about nurturing those relationships. And a great way to start those relationships is when you have a new member of Congress uh, come in right writing that your own welcome letter, as Shatrain mentioned, we do that at SHRM, but it's also having an immediate outreach to the office, introducing yourself and what you can bring to bear. And a great opportunity to put that into action is at our upcoming Policy at Work conference that I'm sure that Shatrain wants to share in for more, more information about. Yeah. So I know many HR professionals probably listening to our podcast is, is thinking, I am immersed in my current day-to-day activities at work. How will I ever keep up to date with all of the policy issues that SHRM is advocating on? How can I be informed to be an advocate for the HR profession? And we have two really easy solutions here for you. So first, SHRM has historically annually hosted a employment law and legislative conference. Next year, we are rebranding the conference and it is now known as SHRM's Workplace Policy Conference. That conference is taking place March 22nd through the 24th. And during next year's program, we'll have two days of programming to talk about trending workplace issues and potential legislation um, and administrative action, and even hear from some experts in the states about things that we may hear about legislative priorities in the states. 
on the third day of the conference, we'll be putting our learnings into action by convening virtually with lawmakers across the country to tell them about SHRM, the HR profession, position ourselves as a resource, as the experts on all things workplace, and also an opportunity to share with them some of the workplace issues that we're going to be focused on. As Lisa mentioned before, there are five policy pillar areas that we're actively working on. There are SHRM policy priorities that include workplace immigration, workforce development, workplace health care, workplace equity, workplace flexibility and leave. During our conference, we will have five policy pillar discussions where we're going to do a deep dive into those issues and talk about We'll, we'll be talking about those topics and the implications for the workplace and potential legislative action. That's a great way to hear from the experts about things that you need to be aware of. And being a part of those conversations, it's not just to be aware of so that you can advocate for, with your lawmakers, but also as an HR professional, it's good for you to have knowledge about those issues because then you can take that information back to your workplaces and talk with your executive team about things that you may be anticipating coming down the pike legislatively in this next year because it's information that you were able to obtain at our conference. In addition to that, beyond this once a year in-person conference, and by the way, next year our conference is going to be a little bit of in-person and also virtual given the current environment, um, and of course that's subject to change depending on how the remainder of the year goes. Year-round, the SHRM Government Affairs team puts together an HR public policy newsletter that we send out to all members on a bi-weekly basis. In that newsletter, you'll find the latest from Washington, D.C. We'll give you the rundown on recent regulations, administrative of action, congressional action that may have been taken in that past two weeks or so uh, impacting the work worker in the workplace. That's a great primer to read. Um, should you be having a call with a member of Congress or a virtual convening with a member of Congress or even state lawmakers, it's good for you to peruse that um, newsletter ahead of your conversation so that you can get the latest. And of course, without fail, if ever you have a meeting scheduled with a policymaker, no matter what level of government, if you'd like to get the latest from SHRM on topics that you should be talking about with that policymaker, we highly encourage you to reach out to the government relations team to get the latest, and we're happy to put together some talking points um, for your conversation with that respective policymaker. I would note that the newsletter has been jammed packed with workplace public policy information as of late, and this is not uncommon for, you know, as an administration winds down or potentially is reelected, um, that there's a lot of regulatory activity towards the end of uh, administration. And we're seeing a lot of that right now, which I'm sure Amber is getting lots of questions in the uh, SHRM Knowledge Center uh, as well about some of these uh, rules mean for HR professionals in the workplace. So we've come to the end of our show. Um, before we end, uh, Shatrain, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Sure. Um, I would say not only be engaged in civic participation during the election cycle, I would highly encourage our HR professionals to also be civically engaged year-round. It's really critical and important um, now more than ever, especially when lawmakers around the country are taking up issues that impact the work worker in the workplace. And thank you in advance for all of your support. Great. Lisa? 
you know, I just um, encourage everyone to get out the vote when we've got, again, a lot of get out the vote uh, resources that can be helpful to uh, our members on the website that we talked about uh, earlier. Take advantage of, the, of that information and use it. Share widely uh, if it can be helpful to your uh, employees as well. This is truly an exciting time. We're lucky to live in a country with free elections and we can all uh, take advantage of our right to vote. And then we have a lot of work ahead of us, regardless of the outcome of the elections. And uh, Sherm will stand ready to work with whoever is in the White House and whoever is uh, in control uh, of Congress going forward. Great. Well, thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, I think our listeners have probably learned uh, quite a bit about our post-elections and what we as SHRM have to offer. Again, there are resources available with regards to elections on our website, um, as well as more information about our A-team. And you could also reach out to the Knowledge Center if you have any additional questions that you're not able to find on our site. Uh, Just go to SHRM.org backslash HR help for information on the advisor service. And thanks again for joining us on Honest HR. You don't have to solve all of your HR challenges on your own. SHRM is here to help. We have the critical resources you need to save time, stay compliant with federal, state, and local regulations, connect with peers, and get answers to your toughest HR questions. For less than a dollar a day, we have the HR resources you can rely on. Visit sherm.org backslash honest HR join to learn more.